I'm here today with Dr. Thomas Fowl, who holds the Alice Mary Baldwin uh, Distinguished Chair in English at Duke University. He has a secondary appointment at the Divinity School at Duke University. He also teaches at the University of North Carolina in the Germanic Studies Department. Today we're here to talk about something pretty basic uh, and pretty profound, and that is reading. So, Thomas, thank you for taking the time to do this. You're welcome. The questions I sent you beforehand are pretty much what I'm going to follow. What is reading, and why has reading the written word been such a fundamental thing uh, in terms of societal and cultural development? So, um, if we if we go back way back, uh, we would uh, sort of find that initially, the um, I mean the main distinction between cultures of whom we have no record of writ of the written word and those that where we do, uh, we find that those cultures that evolved writing initially did so for fairly practical and pragmatic purposes. Um, it, uh, so in Assyria and then in Egypt and, and finally in Greek, uh, Greece and Rome, uh, writing seemed to become necessary as the particular uh, civilizations extended their geographical reach. And uh, having written records uh, was an obvious necessity in order to maintain a sense of political order and also, of course, to fixate and, and sort of establish uh, enduring legal understandings. So there's a kind of practical um, necessity. Um, we have this rather wonderful moment in uh, Caesar's, uh, uh, Julius Caesar's De Bello Gallico, of you know, mm. his wars uh, in, in the transalpine region of Germany and France where the Germanic tribes, uh, one of the Germanic tribesmen remarks uh, sort of in perplexity, why are you Romans constantly writing things down? What's wrong with your memory? And so there is this, uh, this is a classic case of, of two very differently uh, conceived social formations, one working entirely by oral communication um, the other one having, of course, by Caesar's time, established an extremely complex and rich legal and political framework that required writing and record keeping. Mm. So that's sort of, uh, I think, um, surely the anthropological and social basis for writing. Um, but it must have become clear, and certainly by the time we get to, say, uh, the sort of beginnings of the Greek tragic uh, uh, culture, um, in the 6th uh, century, so around 535, it must have become fairly apparent that the word, the written word, holds a lot more value and potential than merely conveying and preserving information. That it sort of becomes in some way a way, uh, that it, it becomes a medium through which we gain a certain enduring perspective on the world in, of in which we are finding ourselves. So that that then, uh, and this becomes clear, uh, of course, in a, in a dramatic way with the Homeric epic, and and then with Greek tragedy. Um, this uh, these are the moments where the culture has suddenly discovered in the written word, although the Homeric epic was sung and initially spoken, but then obviously also written down. 
but certainly in the case of Greek tragic culture, it became apparent that the written word was a way for a culture to gain a comprehensive perspective on itself, hmm. also on its failings, and so for the word to become a catalyst for self-examination and self-recognition. And um, that's, um, I think, where the beginnings of, of the sort of Western understanding of writing and naturally of reading uh, are to be found. Uh, so it's, it was crucial, I think, to social and cultural development in the sense that it allowed a culture to really achieve a kind of comprehensive understanding of itself. Yeah, um, fascinating to yeah. think of that in terms yeah. of things like uh, in the in the Bible, for example. Yeah. You know, Kings, Chronicles. Yes. Um, uh, not necessarily positive views of the culture, but an opportunity for a community right. to see itself for what it is. That's right. Right. And um, and also to sort of make its own internal conflicts uh, a subject that was that could be publicly reflected on rather than being hidden, right? The writing has a way of persisting in time. And so as, as the uh, Old Testament writing uh, endures and is transmitted from one generation to the next, um, it naturally stands to reason that the perspective of subsequent generations on the significance and full import of words written down much earlier will gradually change and will become more complex. So uh, that, I think, brings out another major aspect. A writing that is undertaken solely for the purpose of conveying information tends to have a very short half-life. Hmm. It, it tends to sort of expire in its utility. Once the message has been received, the writing rarely seems to command further interest. But writing that uh, in which a culture sort of reflects on its underlying value structure, as obviously is the case with Greek tragedy or with or Old Testament scripture, um, at that point um, it becomes apparent that the that the text has that the written word has uh, a complexity to it that will almost certainly not be exhausted by any one generation. But that has a it has a kind of self-renewing quality to it, mm. um, and so that um, it then becomes possible for us to achieve self-recognition as to who we are, what our failings are, what our goods are or ought to be, um, in ways that we might not achieve if we didn't have a kind of standard of measurement that was bequeathed us by the past. Can you talk for a minute yeah. about how this kind of reflective activity that happens in light of the fact that there are written words on a page, what happened at the advent of the printing press with that process? Right, so when you know, Johannes Gutenberg uh, begins to start printing somewhere around 1453, um, actually in a momentous year for various reasons, the collapse of the Eastern, the Byzantine Empire that same year. Um, when he does, um, it naturally set into motion a few processes that, that would then very quickly spread across the West, the West and, and pretty much everywhere uh, in the known world. Uh, first of all, um, he 
implicitly democratized the process of reading. It became a far more accessible medium. Writing became a far more accessible medium than it had been. Uh, after all, uh, that was the point. Um, he also ensured, uh, in relative short order, certainly by the time uh, Martin Luther's translation of the Bible uh, is printed, uh, that the language will become more standardized so that the forms of communication and writing and reading uh, become standardized across a wider uh, cultural and geographical realm. Um, this is very, very much observable in Germany in the 16th century, the standardization of German that, that begins to happen. The printing press is a major uh, catalyst in that process. So overall, a significant linguistic yes. impact. Yes, exactly. A kind of homogenizing of, of the understanding of language. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so tell me this, as, as people who live in an age where books are assumed, even yeah. thrown to the corners, we may forget, uh, and we do forget, uh, what a pivotal thing it was for that to begin to happen, for words to be put on the page, and then for words to be able to be printed. What, in your understanding, as someone who spent a lifetime considering words, mm -hmm. and in particular even words on a page, what actually happens to a person or to a group of people? Mm -hmm when you open a page and you begin to read? You are certainly right to, to note that we have become sort of, uh, in our time and for the last several decades certainly, we've become quite complacent about the way we look at books. They are simply there, they are sort of part of the ambient scenery and, and the notion that, that reading and being in the presence of books might should be anything special is, is perhaps rather counterintuitive given where our culture finds itself today. Um, I would say that, um, and before I answer the question itself, I would perhaps say that this the question of whether the book and the written word has, as the German uh, art critic called it, Walter Benjamin called it, whether the book has a certain aura, almost a kind of sacred aura or a, a certainly a kind of unique aura, that sense, uh, I think, had stayed with us well into the 19th century. Hmm. Um, and it is no accident that the 19th century actually sees the emergence of mass print in ways that you rarely see prior to it. There are certainly pamphlets, like Thomas Paine's pamphlet, for hmm. instance, Common Sense, which around 1786 or so forth, very quickly shot up to more than a million. And that was unheard of, and that was immediately perceived to be quite a danger to the political <laughs> establishment that this might be possible. Um, but overall, books were well into the 20th century expensive. Um, the emergence of the modern paperback late in the 1920s and early 1930s further sort of accelerates the, uh, the uh, emergence of a sort of mass reading culture. It's a sort of a double-edged uh, kind of sword, though, I would say. I would, for instance, we might, might notice how our habits of listening attentively, attentively to music or reading attentively a book may actually be diminished by the, by the assumption that I can always listen to it later. Hmm. I can always get a hold of the book later. 
so that when the opportunity arises, we no longer quite feel it to be such an opportunity. If one, if I had gone, say, in 1875 to a you know, performance of a Brahms symphony, it would have been an extraordinary event, and the chances that I would have had several such experiences in my life would have been rare. Mm. The, the odds that it would have been so would have been quite low. Uh, if I n happen to hear the tail end of the symphony, I wish I could hear the whole thing, today I have to reach no further than my computer, and there it is. It's the same with books. Uh, just about any book in print is uh, pretty much available uh, to most people who have access to a computer today, which is a very large number. So the sense that something, uh, uh, something momentous is at hand when we read or, for that matter, listen, um, is perhaps weakened as a result of the sheer availability of the medium. Um, so what happens? Um, I think first and foremost what I should distinguish between what usually happens and what should happen. Mm. Um, what should happen, I think, when we read is the same thing that should happen when we have a serious conversation with someone. Mm. That is, we should, first of all, approach it with a minimum of design regarding its outcome. And we should approach it with a maximum openness with maximal openness as regards our capacity to be surprised by what we will find, to be, to have our perspective altered in ways we didn't anticipate. So we need to be, in a way, as readers, just as uh, responsive to the written word as we should be when listening to someone else. Mm. Um, the more our habits of reading are the informed by a concept of the written word as merely the con uh, conveying information, the less likely we are to feel that surprise. Because where we have information, we tend to think of the information we receive only in terms of its utility value. How does it apply? How can I make use of it? But when it comes to reading literature, of any, uh, any kind, um, that is obviously not an effective way of approaching a text. We need to sort of suspend, as Coleridge famously says, our disbelief. We need to allow ourselves to be drawn into the work and begin to see uh, how it is organized. What genre is it that we are reading? Um, what conventions do we perceive? Uh, what forms of psychology seem to shape the characters in, in a novel, let's say? Um, uh, what kinds of clichés might we detect? Are the clichés deployed purposefully, or, or has the writer simply failed to notice that they are <laughs> clichés? Some writers can actually make a very cunning use of clichés so as to expose a character as, in fact, quite uh, limited in his or her vision. Jane Austen does this beautifully, right? Who where mm. people frequently talk in sort of pre-established mm. convention-saturated phrases, and we are of course meant to pick up on that. Mm. So we need to not only see what they say, but we need very much to pay attention to how it how they do. Two things yeah. come to mind here mm -hmm. as you're talking about what happens as we mm -hmm. read and this um, conversational type aspect of yeah. having a book. Mm -hmm. How do you distinguish between 
Uh, reading is opening a book, somebody sitting on a chair, a couch, mm-hmm. you and the book, versus reading that's public, where there are a group okay. of people and yeah. someone's reading aloud yes. to them. Yeah. Well, both have, have their merits. Um, personally, I think that today I would say it would be beneficial to just about anyone to arrange their lives if they possibly can in such a way as to have time for silent reading mm-hmm. with no distractions, with no media, no, no social media turned on, no computer or any other sort of digital devices you know, casting their glare onto the proceedings, but just <laughs> to be in the presence of a book and read and, and allow this time to be un... Uh, so with uh, to be simply uh, free uh, and and in the form almost contemplative. Um, I think that we have much too little of that. It turns out we also have too little of the other kind of reading. Um, that is the reading where we allow ourselves to to hear the word uh, written out loud, uh, read out loud. Uh, the to to be. Um, I mean, I've, I've I'll give you an example. Uh, I have, when I teach poetry in, in my courses, I always ask students to read the poem out aloud before we begin to discuss it at all. Uh, two things very quickly emerge. The first is whether the student uh, has any comprehension of the poem at all, or whether they read it like the telephone book, <laughs> without any sense for the rhythm and the musicality and the, the sort of sound patterning or any of that. When When that is all absent, then we sort of have to go back to the beginning and actually learn how to read aloud. And a great deal of what we may subsequently come to understand about a poem actually emerges precisely in that process. Uh, what um, Wittgenstein once famously said that what hasn't been said clearly hasn't been thought clearly. Um, in a way that could also be said what hasn't been read out aloud with due clarity and uh, sort of inflection uh, has probably not been understood. One of my mentors used to say that if someone is going to uh, really be ready to read scripture in a worship service, they need to almost be as prepared as the preacher would be to preach on the scripture. I think that's right, yes. Hmm. Um, So reading out aloud is not somehow uh, preparatory <coughs> for the process of interpretation, but it actually is our first evidence of what at what interpretive stage of a text we are. Mm. It reveals uh, a great deal about the understanding we may have or may not yet have achieved of uh, regarding a particular text. It's also a, uh, it can also be something quite beautiful. Um, I think it's something to relish. A silent reading certainly has its place, but I think that that reading out aloud uh, is is very salutary, as you know. I've I've sort of also recommended it to students when they write papers uh, that reading out aloud their own papers before handing them in will uh, be a m- fantastic diagnostic tool for understanding just well are uh, the transitions really what they should be? Are there strange uh, sort of uh, inadvertent repetitions of phrases or words? Um, all this somehow becomes clear for us, uh, much more clear usually, by listening to ourselves read a text aloud 
rather than just scanning it silently. As a pastor yeah. and a uh, liturgist, yeah. I found over the years that having someone read something aloud in yeah. front of people can be a very encouraging thing. It can scare yes. them, but once they do it, it it's it emboldens That's them. Right. It, yes. uh, but it takes some coaching too a lot of times. Yeah. And one of the biggest thing, ways you coach someone is to say over and over, slow down, slow down, That's right. slow down. I've heard people say, oh, I love to read, but I feel like I'm such a slow reader. Could you talk a little bit about the pace of reading and, and the relationship between the pace of reading and, and taking in what a book's saying? Because we all probably wish we could read really quickly and take in a lot of stuff. And I think people would be surprised sometimes that, to know that there's some really bright, um, you know, very well-read people who are actually not fast readers. Right. There was, um, back in the 1960s at Harvard, there was a group called Slow Reading, <laughs> um, convened by Richard Poirier and, and some other uh, literature professors, uh, Ruben Brower, Paul DeMann. Um, they very much believed that, that uh, reading slowly, um, patiently, and also, I might say, recursively, where you have read something and you say, well, I think I need to read that again. Mm. because it hasn't quite registered, where they felt that was actually an extremely good way to sort of really inhabit a text. Um, related perhaps to reading slowly and patiently rather than merely harvesting information, which one can do quickly, related to it is also the sort of f uh, disappearance of the art of memorization. You know, students mm. today, with few exceptions, no longer memorize poetry. I think that's a loss. For one thing, uh, memory is like any other, uh, any, any other ap gift or skill that we have or potentially have need, uh, thrives on being exercised. It's just like running. If you habitually do it, you'll be better at it. And the idea that everything should be instantaneously retrievable online obviously has worked very much against the perceived need to memorize. But that's, I think, uh, very much at our peril that we have sort of given up on that. Now on slow reading, I would say, uh, I mean, I find this, I find myself reading slowly, uh, pretty much as a matter of habit now. Hmm. Um, on the flight back yesterday from out west, I was reading um, in Dostoevsky's, I was rereading Dostoevsky's uh, Demons, or The Possessed, as it also used to be called. And you know, as as goes as happens on these long flights, you read, and then after a while, I thought, hmm, I just read this last page, but I wasn't really attending to it. So I leaf back to where I knew that I had really engaged with the text, and then proceeded again. Hmm. One has to, I think, catch oneself also, as you know, because our powers of attention uh, vary. They vary uh, on you know, for many reasons: how well rested we are, etc what our surroundings are. Um, it really, slow reading, it's not the speed so much as the degree of attention with which I focus in on the text. And the more we learn to do that, the more rewarding reading becomes. I want to interrupt you yeah. for a second, or just yeah. as we continue in this, w what really set me to thinking about this yeah. was the very beginning of this class mm -hmm. on uh, the theology of the image earlier this fall where you gave um, what just took me aback at the beginning of the class mm -hmm. and that was 
an apologetic of sorts for what you called a close reading of the text mm -hmm. that was not simply a close reading of the text, but it was also a close reading of the text sympathetic to mm -hmm. the author. Yes. And it struck me as um, it completely, yeah. almost, countercultural mm -hmm. in our age. I would love for you to pick up on that as well right. a little bit more and describe uh, what you mean by that, a close mm -hmm. reading of the text with sympathy to the author. Well, with sympathy to what is to be conveyed by the text. Um, so there are many authors who, of course, were not particularly pleasant people, and we, we know many <laughs> of them. And so it's not sympathy in that sense, not right. to the historical persona, but, uh, but I think the default ought to be a, a fundamentally sympathetic and open-minded outlook on what the text means to unfold for us, what it means to tell us. It is, to some extent, a countercultural model, uh, because for the past several hundred years, our sense of what constitutes knowledge has been very much shaped by a certain, perhaps rather simplistic, understanding of enlightenment, namely as a form of critical response to whatever is placed before us. Mm -hmm. So that to know means to have proven someone else or something else wrong. Mm -hmm. That knowledge as critique always claims to emancipate the knower from the objects of inquiry. Kind of a Cartesian... To, to yes, right, to sort of expose illusions and deceptions and to sort of uh, make sure that we are not succumbing to error. Those are, of course, all in inherently understandable and even sort of uh, laudable goals. But it is illogical uh, and, in fact, impossible to insist that our first response to the world should be one of distrust. It cannot be. Because the first response will always the be the response to something that's already given to us. I cannot, there must be something that I credit with having a certain reality before I could even begin to distrust it. So if I, to put in more concrete terms, if I read a text, I will be, I think, a much more perceptive and uh, it will be a reader of it. I w it will be a much more rewarding experience for me to read a text. If I accept from the outset that it, uh, a literary text, a poem, a novel, is a kind of complex statement and my first task is to understand what it is that is being stated. What is the vision? What is the view of the world or of a particular object or a particular moment uh, that, say, in an, uh, in an ode, an elegy, or in a novel for that matter, is being unfolded for me? So I should think of it less as someone's self-expression than as an objective statement. And the first task is to understand what is being stated. Mm. What does the text have to say to me? Uh, how I may then respond to it will, uh, the cogency of my response will depend on the degree with which I have accurately grasped this, this 
complex statement that the text offers. If I read, say, a Tolstoy novel, or you know, say, or say a short story like *The Death of Ivan Illich*, obviously, one may at some point sort of quarrel with the way it is told. But before any of that could happen, one really needs to understand what it is that Tolstoy meant to unfold for us. Uh, the sort of the the, uh, the character of uh, Ivan Illich, who has in a way lived a sort of uh, humdrum life of a mid mid-level administrator and judge, who now suddenly faces the last judgment of his own death and mortality, and uh, suddenly finds himself unprepared for the forms of self-examination that that one would expect to occur at that point. And he's also finding himself entirely abandoned by a deeply unsympathetic and fearful family. Mm. And so, you know, there is, in short, there is a great deal to take in before we should summon a response. If we feel that we need to preserve our own intellectual independence above everything else, then I think we are bound to miss a great deal in what a literary work of art has to tell us. So if we, in a way, wish to preserve this kind of cocoon of total independence, mm. uh, of you know, feeling that we are well fortified against anything anyone else may tell us, then we really haven't quite read or engaged with what was offered to us. I mean, you seem to be saying we have to approach the text with a certain level of humility, yes. a certain yeah. level of... Yeah anticipation even. Yes, um, humility and and also I think a fundamental gratitude for, mm. for an author to have written a text of, of significance mm. uh, obviously put a great deal of thought and work into it and we should I think respect that. I think that the, the, sh the, the problem that often happens when people try and read very quickly through a literary text is the same that happens when people nowadays are trying to have a conversation about, let's say, a sensitive political topic. In, we tend to be much more concerned with how we will respond than with how we should listen. Mm. If we think of dialogue, and it is really a dialogue that happens when we read, if we think of dialogue simply as one party stating a certain position and then another stating his or her position, then we have, in fact, no dialogue at all. And we have certainly have no understanding. If what someone tells me in dialogue in, or in, in, in a conversation, let's say on a sensitive political topic, uh, if I find myself viscerally disagreeing with it, the last thing I should do is simply oppose it with a view of my own. Instead, the best thing to do would be to ask a lot of questions, sort of in a Socratic way. What do you mean by that term that you just used? And uh, do you, what what is the what is the good that you see realized by pursuing the kind of line of argument or this political vision that you pursue uh, or unfold for me? Uh, so ask questions, and then in a way, if if we really wish to point out that there are deep and and problematic aspects to someone else's view of the world then we should show that the view is in fact incoherent and fails on its own terms rather than failing on our terms. That will never persuade anyone. But if we can show that it's in itself, it is inherently incoherent, then we may get somewhere. Um, in the case of a literary text, 
I think the situation is somewhat different. We are invited into a, a kind of world that has a kind of quasi-truth to it, but it can quite obviously not be measured simply against known facts. It, it has a kind of integrity to it. A Tolstoy narrative is, is uh, a narrative that has, an, uh, as Tolstoy almost always does, has an extraordinary sense of pacing. Mm. We should sort of accept simply that we want to be drawn into it and begin there. Um, yeah. So, in, in an age where um, it, it's exceedingly possible, yeah. perhaps probable, to be, you, you could be highly educated mm -hmm. and yet marginally read. Yes. Uh, I'm a great example of my undergraduate degree being an accountancy. Yeah. You know, I read accounting books. Right. Yes. <laughs> but I, I realized once I got to seminary that I, I, w I went to a professor's office one day and said, I, I really need to read more. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I mean everything. Mm -hmm. I didn't just mean like theology. Right. I, I think there are so many people in our culture who relate to that. Mm -hmm. What? How do you recommend beginning to kind of deal with that, to try to, you know, make a, a recovery or compensate for that kind of lacking, that kind of want, mm -hmm. that kind of desire. Yeah. If someone wants to say, look, I'm 30 years old, I'm 40, I'm 50 years old, whatever it is, I would like to uh, kind of pick up where I left off, so to speak, if that was 11th grade or 10th yeah. grade or whatever it was, and begin to reclaim mm -hmm. some of that ground. Well, so... I might quarrel slightly with the premise that one can be highly <laughs> educated and not well read. Uh, I'm, I would say that... What Technically educated. Right, exactly. So what we now have is, is a concept of education that has sort of uh, increasingly been pared down to having certain marketable skills and, mm -hmm. and certain professional skills and competency that obviously required a very specialized kind of reading mm -hmm. in its own right or studying. I would say the, the term educated always encompasses much more. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally something different. I mean, the, it comes from the Latin educere, which means to lead out of a certain kind of ignorance. But not just ignorance, but also to draw out, educere, draw out in potential that is already within us. Mm. So it's both a leading out of a certain lack of uh, knowledge uh, into a, comparatively speaking, greater knowledge, but it is also drawing out a potential in us that might otherwise be unused. And if it lies, continues to lie unused, then we will never quite have become who we were meant to be. Mm. So I would, I would first of all say that the question, as you asked it, is of course a, is a tremendous opportunity for anyone who is, who is being asked. Uh, not many people who are in professional, who are professionally successful, would necessarily come and ask the question. Mm -hmm. So a great, I mean, I, I read a few years ago in, in a piece in the New Yorker, I believe, about reading habits of Americans that uh, more than 50% of all men who had been surveyed in a large statistical survey about their reading habits, uh, acknowledged that they had not read a single book cover to cover in the previous year. And one has to assume that the number is actually much higher <laughs> than that. So 
I ha one also, I think, has to assume that many of them really weren't particularly troubled by it. So when someone comes and says, like, as you did at that point, I really need to read more, pretty much everything, uh, that's an extraordinarily good situation to find oneself in as a faculty member. And then, of course, there, there are certain things that I would say, and I'll come to them in a moment. But the question remains, what do we do to awaken a similar desire in those who might not on their own ever realize that this is something they should want to do. Mm. So, which ultimately will get us also into questions as to what do people do rather than read that allows them to sort of continue functioning, but perhaps not terribly well in their professional lives uh, and then otherwise seem to have very little content to their lives. Reading, I think, enriches us immeasurably. So to, to someone who comes, and I do get students occasionally at the end of a term saying, could you write me sort of your top 10 or top 20 list of books? Well, the first thing I would say is be shamelessly canonical. There's nothing wrong with actually uh, starting with books that everybody has sort of suggested before are simply great, they're classics. It is perfectly fine to try and read contemporary fiction, but it is much harder to assess what deserves the time and attention and effort when it comes to contemporary fiction, simply because it is so much harder to judge if we don't have some kind of foundation for our judgment. So if someone asks me who are the novels, what are the novels, who are the novelists I should absolutely read, I don't think I have a terribly unusual or unorthodox set of answers to offer. I, I would I would say read some of the if you if you have a sense for the comic, maybe read something like Joseph Andrews or Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Uh, read maybe Gulliver's Travels. I, if if you are really interested in sort of the the emergence of domestic life in fiction, then maybe Jane Austen would be a rather obvious and, and unfailingly uh, rewarding way to begin. Uh, the great 19th century European novels uh, from Stendhal, The Red and the Black, um, Flaubert, Madame Bovary, uh, Sentimental Education, um, Tolstoy, um, they all they all will pay enormous dividends. It's, it's simply true, and I can't, I I cannot imagine really coming across someone who would say, well, those none of those things spoke to me. If they didn't, that would be, I think, a very worrisome sign. So let I, me ask you yeah. this: I, I have come across a number of people who tell me, you know. You, I don't read fiction really. I like to yeah. read, you know, quote history or mm -hmm. you know things that are more practical. But you just, you know, laid out a lot of quote fiction, yeah. a lot of literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you see as the benefit of reading literature, of reading fiction, as opposed to simply a historical account? Well, it sort of goes back really to the old. Aristotelian idea of what he calls this of concrete universal. He ranked Aristotle famously in the Poetics ranks literature above history because he thinks that the ability of a literary text to convey a situation in a way that we might f recognize ourselves later to be in a similar situation are much higher. The odds of, of that are much higher. 
So there is something sort of paradigmatic about the way that, say, a tragic situation in, in the Greek tragedy plays out that will likely allow us to sort of understand um, ourselves better. I, it's not to say that we shouldn't read history. Obviously, I, I, I'm, you know, I, I read history myself regularly, and, and I think it's extremely valuable right now. I think it would be a good time to sort of read about the fall of the Roman Republic. So there are, there are moments where reading about uh, a particular historical moment can quite obviously sort of resonate with us. Um, there are certain things that I think only a literary text really can do. One of which, here I would, for instance, take the example of Dostoevsky, um, who, you know, as, as philosophers and, and writers ever since have pointed out, was probably the greatest psychologist ever to write fiction. There is so much, so much uh, layering of detail that happens when characters, say in the Brothers Karamazov, uh, sit across from each other and they talk about serious and very difficult things. The way that he portrays uh, the sort of uh, the shifts in, in mood as the conversation progresses. The gestures that he m sort of points out a character makes as he or she speaks. Uh, all of which are sort of um, things that make us gradually more observant of what is actually happening in a conversation, so that we don't just think a conversation is where two people happen to be in each other's presence and exchange messages, mm. but rather that there is a complex dynamic involving, um, involving all forms of, sort of fragility and insecurity and tension uh, between characters that manifest themselves in the way that the narrative shows them to react to one another, the way they avert their ga gaze from one another, the way that they suddenly sort of you know, seem to be distracted. Uh, so we become, I think, much more alert to the incredibly um, finely grained, often brittle, and incredibly value-fraught way in which human beings interact with one another. History, by definition, has to generalize. That's that's the nature of the the, the genre. It, it requires that. It can be done very well, and a great historian will always find a way to sort of bring a poignant detail into the narrative. But still, we feel that we are sort of uh, much more at the mercy of someone telling than showing, mm -hmm. to use the old distinction. And great great literature, I think, is overwhelmingly the art of showing. You grew up in Germany. Yes. Um, so I, I you know, was born in 1960. I came over in 1982 as an exchange student and then stayed on, so at age 22. Um, I had grown up in a, in a household where books were readily available. Both my parents actually were, sort of, uh, through their families respectively, were already in the book publishing world. My grandfather had an art book publishing company in Berlin and my mother in particular uh, also very much um, encouraged me to read and I think I became pretty much uh, a, a serious reader around age 15. Hmm. So when you know I discovered Camus and Nietzsche and, and Thomas Mann and of course understood very little of that 
but but I found them fascinating all the same, and I sensed a potential that you know much of which obviously eluded me for many more years. But it it and was what what yeah. made those authors so fascinating to you? I I don't remember so well exactly what at the time it was. I I seem to have somehow a sense that they were important so because mm. they kept being mentioned mm. um, and so I think part of the beauty of, of sort of becoming uh, a spending a life as a reader is actually to also accept that there is a kind of rather uneven trajectory by which you know s suddenly someone mentions something in conversation you say oh maybe I should check this book out and then you do and that book in turn, you know, on the back cover, it, the writer will be compared to some other writers. And you think, well, maybe if I like this, I should also look at those. So it's not a very planned linear progression, but something rather sort of more adventitious. And I think that's good, too. Nietzsche, I remember the, the kind of epigrammatic concision of mm. his style and the luminous imagery certainly immediately appealed to me, and it, as it did to most people who read him. Um, and he was eminently quotable, mm. and so I, I found myself sort of you know, quoting him to sort of often outrageous effect in class. <laughs> um, of course, still, mind you, not really understanding the implications of it, but that that didn't matter so much then. And so, yeah, that uh, reading, even today, I suppose, is is uh, has a much bigger footprint in European, Western European, and certainly also in Eastern European culture than in the United States. You take a publisher like, I mean, the, the German publisher Zurkamp was one of the, the most Im important publisher in Germany probably over the last half century. Um, uh, uh, Unzel, Siegfried Unzel, the, the director of that publishing house, routinely made commitments to authors who he knew would not sell hmm. because he had other books that would balance the books. He had other, you know, his repertoire of books was sufficiently wide that he knew he would recover the money with other books. The idea that every book has to make a profit obviously acts as a major deterrent when it comes to publishing fiction, especially if it's in a country like ours, as uh, where I mentioned. American men say they haven't read a book of fiction in several years. Uh, I'm not sure what we can learn. It's, um, I'm not sure that we have yet understood that we have a deficit. The obvious competition for the written word, uh, for the book, is, of course, is the world of television and uh, streaming video content. The United States certainly has, it produces a great deal of that, some of which is excellent. It has to be said. So the, the, in that I was going to say, what yeah, would you yeah. say, because in one sense, yeah. historically, there is a progression yeah. from no written word to written word and then from no recorded images right. to recorded images that yes. have language and music and right. what would you say are the benefits and then at the same time how do you right so I mean uh, there, there are certain shows that uh, sort of television serials that over the last 15-20 years that I think uh, could be said to be the obvious uh, successors to the serialized novel of the 19th century mm. So if you think of, uh, say, The Wire, uh, which I think was an extraordinary achievement, you have, you know, it was, uh, in part it was brilliant because it, it essentially had a very clear focus for each of its five seasons. It's and it was, uh, in some ways, it was really a brilliant sociological analysis of what makes us a partially failing culture.
because it looked focused every time on a failing institution, the police, the unions, the press, the schools. And so it, it sort of had a clear focus and, 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 and brilliant script writing uh, really helped draw out just how troubled uh, our world actually has become. Um, so in that sense, I think it is it's, uh, almost on a par with, with uh, a great novel, except that it obviously it expands over several years and, and is much more easily uh, taken in sort of partially rather than as a whole. Reading and, and watching attentively are both skills that have to be learned. And, of course, there's a great deal of bad fiction out there, always has been, <laughs> uh, just as there's a great deal of bad television out there. And if we want to learn to watch perceptively and, and sort of really also to reflect on what the content we absorb, uh, we need to learn how to discriminate. And we should not want to watch a lot of stuff that's simply fluff and has no substance just as I would not advise to read um, novels that really don't have a, uh, that don't seem to have much merit. I am perfectly willing to say, by the way, and other uh, people who work in popular fiction will, will probably crucify me for it, but I'm perfectly happy to say that, that there is a great deal of fiction that I think is, is um, not worth reading. Uh, for one thing, because who could possibly claim to have read all the fiction that is worth reading? <laughs> so we always make a choice, and then the choice should, I think, sensibly always go in, the, in favor of, of the books that have greater merit. And I do believe that it is quite possible to distinguish between books that have low merit and those that have high merit. And if we didn't actually believe that, I think we'd be in trouble from the outset as readers. Uh, recently I picked up a book by Nick Hornby. I've described him before as a writer who does a great deal with popular cultural references. Yes. Hornby wrote a book called Ten Years in the Tub, A Decade Soaking in Great Books, and what he does in the book is he chronicles month to month the books he purchased and then the books he read. Mm -hmm. And early on he makes the point that he does think that the books you surround yourself with, the books you purchase, whether you read them or not, are of equal importance to the books you read. Because, and this is where, I've heard it said before, but I'd mm -hmm. never heard it said with this kind of bent to it. He said, because the books you purchase and surround yourself with say something about who you desire to be. That's true. What yeah. you desire to become. Yes. What your goals are. I would love yeah. to hear you reflect yeah. a little bit on the purchasing of books, the collecting, the gathering of books, how you go about choosing what to do mm -hmm. when and because there is a time for a heavy yeah. book, and there's a time for a light book, of course. And right. you know, there's. I, guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you but are right. There's a time You're for right. comedy. My temperament has, has always right. been to to gravitate to the what you call the heavy books. The I heavy suppose books. we do understand more or less what those are. But yeah, it's. I, I think it's right. Uh, I think that um, one should indeed surround oneself with books one hopes to read, and not only the books one has actually read. If today the world of e-commerce were to collapse and dissolve into thin air and, and Amazon went offline and, and no books <laughs> were to be purchased again ever, I would be in good shape. <laughs> um, I have a library at home that will keep me busy for the next 30 years. I'm not worried. 
it's it's one of the things I do every time that the semester ends is I reward myself by reading a book I've wanted to read and mm. which I have no business reading as far as my own writing is concerned. Something simply unrelated. Um, almost always I find that the book then actually turns out to speak somewhat to the writing I do anyway. But that's a surprise and of course that's the beauty of it is to be surprised in that way. I know I've I read. Uh, I mentioned it briefly. I think at the last session of our seminar, I had started reading this book on Leningrad, mm. Siege and Symphony by mm, uh, Patrick Monaghan, um, about the siege of Leningrad in 1941-42, and Shostakovich's symphony about that, and the genesis mm. and performance of that symphony. A stunning book in its way, um, uh, no, dis disturbing by any standard, uh, because the suffering was unbelievable. So that, that's history, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, right now, as I mentioned, I'm reading uh, Dostoevsky's *Demons*. Uh, I hope to read one more such book before I have to return again to the semester for for those kinds of reading. We've been talking about reading, uh, reading in general, reading literature specifically, but we've mentioned other forms of reading. I find that actually, the older I get, I gravitate more toward articles. And I also begin to gravitate more toward poetry. You teach poetry. Yes. Uh, my guess is you've also written a decent amount of poetry. But no, I haven't. You no, haven't? No, no, I have never. No. Um, yeah. Talk a little mm -hmm. bit then about, as someone who you would say you're not a poet, mm -hmm. although you're a, a very clear, incisive writer, talk about poetry. Right. So I, I think it is with poetry the degree to which we have to, as it were, round out the total statement is higher even than with fiction. That is, we need to, it's not, I mean, fiction obviously tends to involve, for the most part, uh, ex experimental fiction that might go another way, but most fiction tends to produce a sufficient amount of contextual material so that I already have a clear sense of what the parameters are in which the plot unfolds and in which specific utterances by characters are to be sort of made sense of. Poetry, I think, requires of us uh, an especially high level of sort of activity when it comes to filling in hmm. the interstices of, of what has been left unsaid. It is almost like doing a crossword puzzle. Well, I mean, it's it's uh, there's there is no not Just in that sense. Analogy. I think because there are many ways to solve it. Mm. Um, so there, but it certainly requires a, a kind of fundamentally contemplative stance in which I allow for the word to to make a demand on me to to give to to really fill in the meaning that that I think it has. If I if I look at a, I mean, there are certain poets who I particularly admire. Say, take someone like Seamus Heaney. His early poetry, from *Death of a Naturalist*, uh, 1966, I believe, is is really quite simple. The first poem in 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 that collection called *Digging* um, simply shows him as a writer at work in his study, looking down into the garden, into the yard where his father, the farmer, is digging and uh, juxtaposing the work of writing to the work of digging mm -hmm. and on sort of seeing what it turns up. 
It's a very compact, a very straightforward poem. You don't need any particular information, really. It's, uh, but the beauty of it is, of course, in, is in part at least, uh, lies in the concision of it. It's just single scene. It's almost like a snapshot. Or let's say you take, you take a 10-second video of, of this, you know, where you sort of just capture the spatial situation, him above the father, suggesting also the way that our culture tends to value more highly intellectual activity over physical activity often. Mm. Whether it's right to do so or not is another matter. He is quite dubious about it. But it also suggests a certain tension. The father perhaps not really understanding what is this son doing up there anyway. <laughs> right? So immediately you have a, a sort of panorama of psychological, sociological, and aesthetic considerations. But all that is, is just implicit. And so we learn to sort of tease out what is implicit in an utterance by reading lyric poetry. And, and, in that, and that is a skill that will serve us eminently well in all kinds of situations. Um, because we begin in a way, the lyric is, t after all, tends to sort of focus on a situation that is very compressed in time and space. And so it, uh, it, it really asks us to grasp just how much is at stake in what may seem a passing, seemingly uh, trivial moment. So we are, in a way, we, we begin to sort of relate with a certain kind of forensic acuity to to a scene, to a situation. We understand that the situation, which at first glance may seem innocuous and even uninteresting, actually is rather distinctly charged. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, first of all, that means that we participate in our ambient reality more fully than if we simply say, well, there's someone digging and there's someone writing. Right? So paraphrase will not get us here. Uh, or will not get us anywhere. Uh, it's rather to sort of understand that this is a generational shift, a sociological tension or gap of sorts, uh, and perhaps also a scene rife with the possibility of misunderstanding mm. uh, or misconstruing the other. So you would say poetry has the ability perhaps yeah. to make us more attentive to our own surroundings? To our own surroundings and ultimately also to our own assumptions uh, mm. with which we approach those surroundings, right? I mean, uh, at the end, contemplation is also always uh, aimed at a, a higher level of self-recognition and self-awareness. The writer, uh, it's clearly in this case, the poem is very much, uh, it, no, it's written from the perspective of the I. So Seamus Heaney, a young poet, opens with a poem, the, his first collection of, no, published collection of poetry opens with a poem in which he feels acutely self-conscious uh, about being a poet for the simple reason that he is at once so keen on writing about the culture of Ireland, in which he, of rural Ireland where he grew up, but he's also estranged from it. And so what, how can he even presume to write about it? And this will be a recurrent motif in some of his poetry then, mm. in a sense that to write about the culture is also to hazard perhaps already a form of estrangement from it. Writing is not necessarily an assertion of authority, but it's also an always the experience of a certain fragility. When I put words on a page, uh, there are so many ways in which if I really think about it, I might get it wrong.
So I realized that a lot is at stake when I try to form, uh, to, to put on the page a thoughtful, informed, insightful and responsible utterance. So Thomas Mann's wonderful statement that a writer is someone for whom writing is particularly difficult mm -hmm. uh, always tries, uh, uh, strikes me as, as well fundamentally on point. Um, writers don't uh, compose typically with ease. Now there are exceptions. We know, for instance, that Johann Wolfgang von Goethe dictated much of his poetry to his secretary, <laughs> and Schiller was just stunned when he heard how Goethe could dictate hexametric form, <laughs> as though he had just you know, memorized it, but it just came out of that. And obviously, there are exceptions, but mostly it's, um, it's difficult. You, you, yeah. uh, tend to, you quote Coleridge a good bit. You've been yeah. shaped by him, it seems. Um, how? How so? Coleridge, yeah, I mean, Coleridge embodies the um, the agonizing process of writing, perhaps more than most. Mm. Um, he was incessantly vexed by his own failings, and for the most part, he was right to be. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be said he was uh, he was a trouble to himself and many uh, around him, but he was also a, a person of immense spirituality. Um, because he was, I mean, in, the, in the sort of profound Augustinian way, he was profoundly aware of his own inadequacies and agonized over them. He made no excuses for himself, um, and often, it has to be said, was um, found writing actually as his last refuge in which to sift his stunning inadequacy as a husband, as a father, as an intellectual for that matter, you know, who started many, many projects that he never finished. Of course, he left behind an extraordinary body of writing, but it is a writing that requires immense patience and um, persistence to sort of wrap one's mind around, because much of it is actually fragmentary. But Coleridge, uh, his, I mean, his gifts for introspection are second to none, I would say. Mm. If you look at his notebooks and obviously some of his poems like Frost at Midnight, there's something truly profound about the degree to which he is able to listen in on himself. Mm. Uh, the Augustinian phrase of homo incurvatus, uh, incurvatus in se, you know, man curved in on himself, was sort of a motto for him. Um, you mentioned his spirituality. We've perhaps, uh, in one sense, assumed by many, yeah. but we've been speaking as Christian to Christian here. Yeah. You are Roman Catholic yes. in your faith and practice. How, how do you think that, uh, how does that impact the way you approach the written word and the way you approach uh, writing? Well, I, I mean, my, my sort of turn toward, or if one can say that, return to Roman Catholicism uh, took place over a long span of about 15 years or so, um, beginning... Can you speak a little bit to that? Yes, I mean it was really prompted initially by my sense that, that the intellectual work I was doing uh, rested on foundations of which I was insufficiently aware, that, that uh, my philosophical and literary interests ultimately 
seem to require much deeper awareness of the theological questions on which they rested. And so I began reading in, uh, in theology much more extensively than I had previously done. Were you raised in the church? Uh, nominally. I, I was raised uh, in, uh, in a family in West Germany in the 1960s, which was about as secular a place as you could expect it to be. You know, the, the in economic miracle really absorbing all the attention of, of society in the late 50s and 60s. Josef Ratzinger, eventually Pope Benedict XVI, had given his inaugural lecture in Münster, I believe in 1959, uh, with the title The New Pagans. And the New Pagans are in fact what he means by Christians. He says that the Christians of, of that world into which I was born are uh, de facto pagans. They go to the church in, in the most complacent, for the most complacent of reasons, and uh, they, they really have drifted away from a deeper understanding of what is at stake. He had a very unvarnished, I mean, he was an Augustinian, you know, he, by training, he had a very unvarnished and, and unsparing uh, appraisal of his contemporary society and where it was headed. I think he was fundamentally right about that. And so, yes, I was brought up, uh, sent to church on Sundays for a while. My parents never went. Hmm. So, um, I, um, so it was really, in many ways, um, a token uh, and, and, and uh, sort of, yeah, I guess when they say lapsed Catholic uh, upbringing. And, and yeah, so my return really was, was the first serious engagement with Catholicism over the last 15 years or so. Yeah, so how old were you when you began to really return? I was in my mid-40s, okay. yes, yes. So how have you seen that impact the way you approach your studies and your teaching? And again, your well, I mean, f I think for me it's, it, it's given me a much broader frame of reference and more fully developed, fully evolved vocabulary of especially of responding to the sort of spiritual and moral stakes that are always in play when we read literature. All writing in that sense is must be animated by a sense of hope that, that whatever the message is that we seek to convey ought to be heard because some good is at stake. Not just information to be conveyed, but a good. So we don't just write in order to convey information, right. but for the sake of a good that in a way precedes our writing. So the, the notion here of the good um, in the platonic sense is something that we don't enunciate in writing, but that we seek to fulfill by it, in which our writing and our reading for that matter participate but we don't construct it out of whole cloth. That's, I think, where poetry in particular, I think, is, is making an enormous, uh, offers an enormous resource for people who are interested in religious culture, perhaps thinking about a return to a religious practice. And I would include a lot of poets who might not actually themselves have been religious in any particular way at all. I mentioned, I think, in class at one point in passing, that Rilke, who is certainly one of the eminent German 20th century poets, became a theologically and spiritually more interesting poet when he th 
had detached himself from this sort of sentimental upbringing uh, in his native Catholicism in Prague. Once he thought he had left all that behind him, the sort of somewhat saccharine uh, uh, Catholic sensibility associated above all with his mother, once he had left that behind him, he actually seems to have freed up in himself a potential for raising metaphysical and theological issues that he would have otherwise never raised as cogently because it wouldn't have been his language. It would have been a language with which he sort of had been stuck. And the early poetry shows that. Another case would be... And he's be a poet yeah. exceedingly yeah. Uh, yeah. popular among serious theologians. That's right. Exactly. And, and another one would be T.S. Eliot, you know, mm -hmm. who of course was much more self-conscious about his sort of journey back to the church, you know, had been born uh, into a Unitarian family and, and uh, realized eventually that that didn't really seem to answer any of the major questions that were uh, beginning to preoccupy him already during his student years. This turn back to yeah. the church, to Christ yeah. himself, how's it impacted the way you view students? Um, that's a wonderful question. I, I, and I hadn't thought about it, uh, but, but it has made, actually, now that you ask it, it has made a significant difference. I think when I was a young um, assistant professor, I was much more content to simply look at the students as students who happened to be in my classes and then do more or less well in response to various assignments and, and readings. And I, I was not yet... Uh, by any means, even remotely uh, attentive enough to their own sort of situation. Recently, I wrote a little bit about it. I um, I, I don't know whether you saw this little piece, uh, which uh, I think offers rather blunt appraisal of where students find themselves today. Of the modern university. Yes, I yeah. have read it twice. I yeah. <laughs> so I do now, and and obviously the the sensibility of students in the 30 years that I've been teaching has changed. I think... You, will you describe that? Yes, yes. I think that they are much more, in the aggregate, they are much more distressed mm. by, not just by the insecurity of the future in a material sense, that would be secondary, I think, but rather by, by their wondering, what is it all for? this this kind of competitive learning environment into which they have entered or perhaps have been thrust by their parents where you know every grade seems to be a sort of indelible uh, either credential or stain on their sense of self mm. uh, which shouldn't be the case where they might be preparing for professions to which in fact if they were ever to ask themselves nothing actually draws them that success is now defined increasingly in terms that have nothing to do with a particular person, mm. but rather with a, a kind of envisioned trajectory of upward mobility and material security. And where, in fact, as, uh, as, I, as I pointed out in that piece, where students may have already been deprived to a significant extent of what we used to call childhood, because they were in a way always already being groomed for making it to the best school, to the best university. And, and therefore, you know, finding themselves stressed 
with expectations uh, and, and deprived often enough, I think, of the sense of play, of exploration, of leisure, which I think is an important thing for a child to have. Mm. Uh, the, the sort of the schedule, the overscheduled kids, in the way that William Derezievich wrote about that in his uh, Excellent Sheep. Um, so I, I now I've become simply much more attuned, I think, to to the precariousness of the so f to the precarious state of today's undergraduates' uh, uh, psychology and sensibility, and I do for that reason also draw out much more in the texts I explore with them. For instance, the often unconventional route that the authors took. I mean, if you want to look at a writer like Coleridge, you know, who who never missed an opportunity when it came to missing opportunities. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, any 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 professionally sensible decision placed at his disposal, from a practical point of view, he got wrong. <laughs> I mean, that was just you know, uh, when they offered him uh, a permanent staff writer position at the Courier, I believe, he said no. He was penurious. He had no money. The obvious thing would have been to say yes, but then would we have what we do? Almost certainly not. He would have wasted his career writing uh, short uh, journalistic pieces on uh, things that would have for a very brief time engaged the audience and then would have been forgotten. Mm. He did actually write a good bit of journalism as it is, but on his terms, not on terms of professional expediency. As we begin to wind down, yes. as you're reading, mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about uh, writing as you read and mm -hmm. underlining and taking notes and marginalia. Yes. Um, I've been reading through Walker Percy's personal library ah, yeah, yeah, over at yeah. UNC. And you, you can actually go find out which books have marginalia and then you can check them That's out right. based on that yeah. to see what he did. But Will you talk a little bit about your own practice in and, and what you recommend in terms of underlining and taking notes and things like that as you're reading? Right, so books that, that I read related to a project of mine, um, I, I'm quite um, a little bit like a bookkeeper almost, uh, uh, the way I go <laughs> about it, I admit, uh, the sense of irony, I suppose, but I... Yes, I have a ruler and a pencil, and I underline passages that I know are particularly important. So a if ruler and a pencil. Yes, pen. no, never a pen. A pen doesn't belong on a printed <laughs> page, uh, and nor does a highlighter. Just to be clear, um, that's blasphemy. <laughs> um, the uh, the other thing I do is uh, have started doing over the last several years is when I know specifically that a passage has to be incorporated into something I write, I put a cue next to it. Quote. I don't write a lot of marginalia because usually the moment I return to the passage I already know why it was important so I don't have to write reminders usually to myself. What I do uh, related to this though when it comes to literature of course in our day it's easy to cut and paste right so you go to the screen grab the passage you want to quote from somewhere else and simply paste it into your text. If you want to write an essay on literature my advice would be not to do that but to type it out. Because in so doing, we actually read it again very attentively and we will n almost certainly see more things in it. Another thing is when it comes to writing, if the writing gets really tough, 
my, my two forms of remedy are first, take a walk. Walking is, is a very, very good thing. Uh, or run or go exercise or do something, but, but not with, with anything on your ears. Just, just do the walking or the running and allow thoughts to form. I, I think I got a lot of writing done while not sitting at my desk, but running over the years and, and or working out. Um, the other thing I do is when it gets really difficult to write is to switch from the computer to longhand. Mm. Uh, because the computer writing on, on, on the keyboard is, is essentially always sort of comes with an expectation of a certain speed. Mm-hmm. And writing by longhand, we are able to sort of linger over the choice of words and we, um, because we write much more slowly, obviously, that way, and that's a good thing. So if I n- sketch out the architecture of a longer piece, I usually do it by longhand. And then transfer that mm-hmm. to the screen, which almost certainly will involve a first layer of revisions and clarifications. But that's also, uh, I think, a good thing to do. The art of handwriting, I think, is, is itself in some peril. I see it with my students, and I don't allow in my undergraduate classes computers. Really? So, um, yeah, no computers, no phones, just just pencil, paper, and the text. How do they respond to that? They Not that they have a big choice. But that's correct, they don't. <laughs> uh, I've not had a complaint. They've accepted that. And uh, I, if I was asked why, I would be happy to give an explanation for it, but uh, I would make it clear that the explanation is not, uh, is not something that will now be discussed and then perhaps the policy revised, the policy stands. It's, it's been uh, absolutely the right thing to do. I know of lots of colleagues who now do it. And do the students, after a while, tend to really enjoy it? Yes, it? I think they, I mean, they, they, they do, of course, have the withdrawal symptoms uh, of not being able to check their phone or their emails or whatever, but that's the point. They are, their reservoir of attention is suddenly increased exponentially. Mm-hmm. And they, they, I think after a short while, they begin to notice that they're just much more engaged with where they are at. You know, minimize, I mean, all good study begins with certain forms of mental hygiene. You have to sort of minimize distractions. Uh, I remember long ago my oldest daughter was listening to music and writing a paper for a high school class, and I said, why do you do that? Uh, in the end, you don't do either well. You will neither listen well to the music, nor will you write well what you are ostensibly writing. Uh, so, you know, set time aside for listening, but, but allow yourself to write and just write and have everything else turned off. It's, it's uh, the, the whole idea of multitasking is, is, is I think, a fraud, um, and I think we should simply avoid it. So that's, that those are simply practical things that, that I sort of have learned to, to practice. Uh, Mm. I can listen Very to music nice. when I answer emails, and it makes it puts me usually in a more generous frame of mind. <laughs> so that's uh, that's okay. Um, but when it comes to serious writing and thinking, or even a serious email, I, everything has to be off. Mm. Um, you know. It's probably a generational thing. M- most people who are y- significantly younger than I'm 
which is to say most people, probably are very comfortable with reading on screen. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm, and it, it's for a number of reasons. First of all, a book is a three-dimensional object, and I know when I read something that it was, say, around page 150 rather than 500. On a computer or on a reader, that's not easily found in the same way. We can obviously mark them, but it's not quite the same. Um, the other is that um, I think there's a profound, uh, a, a sort of more a spiritual dimension to it. Mm. My, I, I still remember to this day the first book I purchased. And, and there is a kind of sense of, of a book that's physically resting, cradling in your hands, that I think is, is, uh, it's, it's an experience that, that I at least have always treasured. Mm. Maybe it's a generational thing and that, that is no longer the case. But the first book you purchased, was it hardcover? Was it a hardcover book? Yes, yes, I, I think it was a history book. I'm quite sure it was actually. And it's for me, it's a physical object. It's, it's also an important way of, of sort of being engaged with it. Um, everything on screen sort of carries with it already the taint of the ephemeral, hmm. sort of, you know, uh, a screen that has disappeared is really gone, whereas if I turn the page, I feel it's it's still there. It's a, it's a different way of responding to an object. We don't have a sense of an object when we read on screen. We have really just a virtual markers, code. There's also a certain kind of beauty to books. Not all, needless to say, but some books. I mean, they're also visually appealing in that way. That also disappeared. Finally, I mean, I just don't think we ought to get away without pressing you a little further on a list yeah. of books that you would recommend that people read. Everything from, let's say someone's never read Plato. What should they read and why should they read it? Good. Uh, so here I would say the Phaedrus would be one of the first I would read because at the, at the very heart of it is the uh, is a dialogue about how to understand love. And that's obviously a very important thing to, to try and think through. And the Phaedrus does it quite brilliantly. The other text, uh, I suppose, would, would have to be the Republic. Stanley Harvard and I once talked about the curriculum and, and uh, what uh, Duke has currently going for a curriculum, which I think few people are really enamored with. And Stanley mentioned a colleague who had said, well, no, the best curriculum would be where you start with the Republic in year one, and then in year four you read it again. Not a bad idea, actually, but um, unlikely to be implemented these days. <laughs> so with Plato, that would be, I think, a text. I think Seneca's essays uh, would be really good essays, because I think they, they offer... The Stoics are really an interesting um, development in the history of Western thought, because they are the figures who for the first time create, within the pagan culture, uh, create a sense of a universal moral language. Mm. And uh, Seneca is really quite wonderful. I mean, these days, I suppose, it might be a good text would be to read his uh, short treatise on anger, of uh, which there seems to be an abundance, and <laughs> it might be good to get some perspective on it. I think in sort of modern in the m in modern times anyone who has a strong 
interest in Christianity ought to really read very, very thoroughly through Paradise Lost. Hmm. C.S. Lewis thought that was particularly important. Yes, yes. And C.S. Lewis' little book on Paradise Lost is absolutely wonderful, yes. Um, I think those with, with such interests in Christianity, I think I would warmly recommend various of Newman's sermons. John Henry Newman's plain and parochial sermons, written still while he was an Anglican, mm -hmm. and then also his Oxford University sermons, especially the later ones, sort of 10 through 15. Um, reading Aristotle's Ethics, I think, is, is something that everybody should do, the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, chapters on friendship, on economic justice, on contemplation. Um, those are just extraordinarily good books, and it was after all it was written for his son, as mm -hmm. a sort of primer for m to develop what I think we, we all need, and then perhaps increasingly seem to lack, which is a certain kind of moral literacy. Mm -hmm. So, and the other the writers, the other writers I, I just admire, which I think, uh, no, some are harder to get into than others. So, I think Tolstoy is just a magnificent writer, and anyone who enjoys being drawn into a rich world with, with an uh, unfailing sense of narrative pacing will find Tolstoy's uh, extraordinary. Those who are interested in sort of understanding the modern condition, uh, I think for them reading Dostoevsky would be, I think, vital, especially Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov. Can you name a couple of books that people most likely have not come across or heard of that you, you would say, these are sleepers, these are something that you've yeah. come across that you would say, this, this might be particularly delightful or particularly challenging in a yeah. positive way? J.M. Kutzia, hmm. uh, Waiting for the Barbarians and Disgrace would be hmm. two books that I think are really superb. He's an extraordinary writer, South African. Uh, so he comes to mind. A writer who I admire immensely, he's a difficult writer um, in some ways, uh, is uh, Vasily Grossman, the Russian writer who wrote an immense novel called Life and Fate, which is, is often considered to be the greatest 20th century Russian novel. Mm. But he also wrote uh, some other books that, uh, and as well as journalism, that's extraordinary. He was the first person to actually write, uh, to enter with the Red Army uh, when they liberated Auschwitz. And he was the first person to write for the Red Army star uh, paper a description of what he saw. Uh, his journalism, his wartime journalism is extraordinary. As is, is a later book from the early 60s calls, uh, called Everything Flows very strong writer. What about poetry? The poets, I, I think one can, uh, I would always recommend to someone who is interested in poetry but perhaps a little bit apprehensive, uh, Seamus Heaney. I would say going chronologically through the, um, through the series of collected works, or Opened Ground is mm. the title, that just read that sequentially, that's very, very in engaging. I normally do not believe that poetry can be translated very well. Mm. I do, however, think there are a couple of exceptions, one of which is the poetry of Czeslav Milos, yeah. who uh, I admire immensely, 
and who after all taught for decades in the United States at Berkeley and, and also oversaw the translations of his poetry by Robert Huss and so uh, was certainly involved to the point that one could say this is you know, has a certain authorial approval um, and it reads often very well. His poetry I think is extraordinary as is in fact his entire life. Uh, Andrei Franoshek's uh, biography of Milos is, is an extraordinary one uh, mm. to read. So Milos comes to mind other poets who I'm, I mean, I'm, I, as you know, I am deeply drawn to T.S. Eliot, but that's hardly uh, new and perhaps most people who have read at least some poetry are already familiar. Earlier poetry, well, you know, the obvious, the usual suspects, I guess, you know, Wordsworth and Keats come to mind. With Wordsworth, I'd say you can safely stop after 1807, though. And with Keats, it's good to start in 1817 and not earlier. What about Shakespeare? Right, so, yes. I've always been uh, uh, fascinated with Shakespeare, but I've also, in a way, always kept him a little bit at arm's length. Mm -hmm. He's perhaps overwhelming um, in in the way that uh, that can be a gift or a hindrance. There are certain plays of his which I find astounding. Uh, I mean, Lear, to me, is is one of the Mm. top plays, uh, Shakespeare's canon, for sure. I think if you want to simply explore what the English language is capable of, well, then Shakespeare is surely it. Um, I mean, the the sheer variety of vocabulary, of forms of speech, of situational sort of complexity that he uh, introduces. Very much appreciate you taking the time. Sure. Maybe we'll pick up again. Yes. And Mm -hmm. maybe uh, between now and then you'll pick up your viola as well. (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll see.